Good morning. The other day I was sitting in a waiting room and the TV was on. And on TV was one of those talk shows where there are like half a dozen women sitting behind a table talking. That's what you do, I guess, on a talk show. Um, And they were about to have, evidently, a a famous life coach as a, a guest on their show. But before they brought him into the studio, uh, they played a little clip of one of these women who was a host of the show going to see this guy for a free, one free session with this life coach. And so I was watching, intrigued, curious to see what kind of life coaching he would give her. And he had her draw a picture, a self-portrait. He said, I want you to draw a self-portrait of your best version of yourself. So she drew a little person smiling and happy and described her as free and carefree. Then he said, I want you to draw a version of yourself that represents the worst version. And so she drew this downcast face, and she depicted herself behind bars. And and then he said, now name that person, but give it a different name, not your name. Let's call her someone else. And from that point on, they proceeded to talk about that lesser version of her as though it was an entirely different person. She had a whole new name, and that wasn't even her anymore. And so there you go. You have in yourself all you need already to be the perfect version of yourself. You just got to keep that creepy roommate from coming out all the time. (laughs) Different story. The other day, Barbara showed me a post she saw on social media someone who explained that um, she was getting really irritable and impatient and even aggressive toward her husband and kids. And then she cut meat and gluten out of her diet, and she is a kind and patient and charming person. And it turns out it was simply gut health. That was her problem. No sin, no personal responsibility, right? Just gut health. Easy. I see stuff like this all over in our culture. I'm tuned into it because I know that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And I see that everywhere I look, people are looking for change. It reminds me of this quote from Timothy Lane in the book, How People Change, when he says, nothing is more obvious than the need for change. Nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. Nothing is more obvious than the fact that we need to change. And nothing is less obvious than what needs to change. Is it our diet? Is it our alter ego? How do we change? So let's turn to John 2, beginning in verse 23. We'll read through chapter 3 verse 21, because we want to receive revelation from God, our creator, our maker. We, we want divine revelation, supernatural truth that actually diagnoses the root of our problem. What is it that needs to change in us? And revelation that graciously prescribes for us the only remedy for how that change happens. This is God's word. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words that you speak are spirit and life. The flesh is no help at all. But only the spirit, the spirit of the living God gives life. And so we pray as we just sang, Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Drive the dark of doubt away and show us your glory, that glory which was revealed 
supremely in your cross. Give us eyes to see. Bind us to yourself and to your cross where we find life. In Jesus' name, amen. So I trust that you have some awareness of your own life that you need to change. But do you know what needs to change? The answer in this text is that you need an entirely new nature. Look at John 2, 23. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Remember, we just left off. He was in the temple. He was there for the Passover. And there are crowds of people, and they see the signs that he's beginning to do. And John says that many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But... Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And there's a play on words here where many believed in him, but he did not entrust himself to them. It's actually the same Greek word there. They trusted him. He didn't trust them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was, this is the key word, he knew what was in man. So Jesus begins to perform miracles, and people start to follow him, but not everyone followed him for the right reasons. John tells us in chapter 6 that at one time Jesus did some signs, and people gathered, and they're following him, and they, they, they say, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And that's good, right? People are believing that this is the prophet. But John tells us in chapter 6, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again, to the mountain by himself. He didn't entrust himself to everyone because he knew them. Jesus knows people. And he doesn't know people just based on outward appearances and first impressions or what we're also good at, managed perceptions and projected identity getting people to think about us, what we want them to think about us. He's not fooled by any of that. Jesus knew what was inside of people. The text says he knew all people, verse 24. Jesus knows all people exhaustively. That's a divine attribute. Only God knows what's in the heart and the mind of a person. Jesus knows what is inside of you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows your desires. He knows your beliefs. And he didn't entrust himself to some people because he knew something about what was in them. There was something inside of them that was a problem. And that's the first hint in this text that what needs to change is inside of us. Not just your diet. It's not just a gut health thing. It's not your alter ego. It's not your environment or your circumstances. It's not even your stress at work. Colossians 2 says that Human philosophies, human approaches to change are things like don't eat that, don't touch that, don't handle that. And Paul says in Colossians 2, that has an appearance of wisdom, doesn't it? And it's powerless to restrain sin in us. I mean, sleep and diet and friends and those influences, those are real factors in our lives. But in our pride, don't we like to place all the blame on everything and everyone outside of us? so that we avoid taking any personal responsibility that when we act sinfully, it's us acting sinfully? The root, the deepest problem is not outside of you. It's not around you. 
It's inside of you. The, the reality that this text reveals is that the problem is you. And not just that, but that you need new affections. You need a new nature and you need new affections. Specifically, your problem, the, the human problem, is disoriented affections, misplaced worship. Look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. Here it is, the human condition. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. Loved the darkness rather than the light. It's not like the world is full of a bunch of people who just mean well and have good intentions and are trying to figure it out. No, we love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. People love the darkness and hate the light. We, we love what we ought to hate. We hate what we ought to love. It's a matter of worship inside of us. At the root, inside of us is what we desire. Our desires drive our behaviors. That's what the Bible teaches. The, the observable exterior behavior always comes from the heart. Why do we do wicked things? Because we want something other than God. So the loves and the longings of our hearts steer our attitudes and steer our behavior and steer our speech. And everything that we do is aimed at getting what we want. And so we need a new nature that has new affections and new desires and a new object of worship. That's the issue. That's the human condition. The other way to say it is, you have to be born again. That's the remedy Jesus prescribes. Three times in this text, John 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, which is a phrase I think Jesus uses something like 26 times in this gospel. It's a, a claim of divine authority. When he's saying this, this isn't just you know, some personal opinion or recommendation. This is with divine authority. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responds incredulously, how could that happen? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? What does that mean? And Jesus just doubles down in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot, be, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he says again in verse 7, don't marvel at this. Don't be surprised at this. Don't be astonished that I said to you, this is the main point of the whole text. You must be born again. I think that it was John Piper who pointed out that the prescribed remedy for a condition tells you something about how serious the condition is. Think about it this way. Imagine you go to see a doctor because you notice some skin infection on your leg, and it, it won't clear up, and it's bothersome, and it's, it's painful, but you don't think it's that serious. So you go to see a doctor because it's not going away, and you're thinking, I'll probably just give me some you know, prescription strength topical cream or something, and it'll clear up, and it'll be fine. But if the doctor comes back into the room and sits down and with a serious look on his face says, we need to amputate your leg, that would get your attention. 
right? That would tell you something about the seriousness of the condition. You didn't think it was that serious, but the, the remedy that he prescribes tells you that it's a lot more serious than you thought it was. When Jesus prescribes this remedy to Nicodemus and all of us, you must be born again. He's telling us something about how serious our condition is in sin. If the problem was just that we were ignorant, well, then you'd prescribe some you know, remedial classes, some education. That would be what you need. Is that our deepest problem? We just don't know all that we need to know, and so we just need more education? If your problem was just confusion, then maybe all you would need would be an example to follow. I just follow this example. That will keep you from getting confused and lost on the way. Here's a guide to get you where you're trying to go. If your problem was just that you were you know, morally weak, and you had really good intentions, but you just didn't have the follow-through, you know, like New Year's resolutions and stuff. Maybe you just need a coach and encouragement and accountability along the way. But Jesus prescribes new birth. You don't need to, you know, remodel what you already have. You need to start over. You need an entirely new nature with new affections. You need to be born again. This is not some optional add-on and upgrade to your current life. This is nothing less than receiving an entirely new life. New life. That's what's needed because there's nothing in our old self worth keeping. The new birth is the supernatural creation of new life and new affections, and it happens from the inside out. And every other philosophy and every other religion on earth, every other technique to change is outside in. Apply this formula. Repeat this mantra. Follow these 12 steps. Cut gluten from your diet. Try this essential oil. And all of it is powerless to change the human heart. So watch out, because it's all over us in this culture. Watch out for every false promise of change that locates the problem outside of you and fails to address what's inside of you. It's so subtle, and it's so dangerous, because it's everywhere. When the Spirit of God comes, He causes you to be born again, and you're changed. You're changed from the inside. And you experience that as brand new affections. In John 3, 5, Jesus says being born again is the same as being born of water and spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? A lot of people assume Jesus is referring to baptism. And and I'm convinced that he's not for lots of reasons. One is that he seems to expect Nicodemus to know what he's talking about. Because Nicodemus knows the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus' reference to water and spirit seems to point to there are things in the Old Testament that would clue you in to this, Nicodemus. You should understand what I'm talking about. And baptism isn't one of those things. And nothing else in the text is pointing to baptism. Rather, I think Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 36 and the, the new covenant promise that God gave. Listen for the connection between water and spirit in this new covenant promise of what God says he will do in the hearts of his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit 
I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's new in the new covenant? It's not that the old covenant was obey God and the new covenant is no need to obey God, as some people mischaracterize it. It's not the difference between you used to have to obey God and now you don't have to obey God. It used to be you couldn't because you didn't have a heart to. And the promise of the new covenant is I'm going to give you a new spirit so that from the inside out you trust and obey and delight in and are careful to walk in God's ways because you have a whole new nature. The very spirit of God dwelling in you. God promises to cleanse you wash you, purify you of all your past sin and failure and guilt and to make you new so that your motives and your desires and your affections change. The the language, the picture he gives is taking out a callous, stone-cold heart that's dead and unfeeling and unresponsive to God that feels nothing. If you've been born again, you know what that's like. You can probably think of a time in your life when you were unresponsive to God. Maybe you, were, you grew up in the church, you went to VBS and Sunday school and catechism, and you did all that stuff, and you'd say, I had no affection for God. I had no appetite for his word. I had no desire to pray. I went through the external motions, but my heart was far from God. And when you're born again, God puts a new heart in you, one that's feeling and beating and feels affection, wants to walk in God's ways. That's good news. This is good news. Is your heart this morning like stone? Or has that stone heart been replaced with a beating and sensing and feeling heart of flesh. Do do you perceive Jesus to be glorious? Does your soul taste the glory of Jesus? When you hear his words, do you think, oh, how long is that going to take? Or do they come to you as a delight to your soul? Like Jeremiah says, your words came to me and I ate them and they were a delight to my soul. Are you enthralled by the majesty of Jesus? If not, or if you know people who aren't, how can one be born again? That, that's Nicodemus's question. That's his hang up. How? How does that happen? Here's how. The new birth is not something you do for God. The dangerous, subtle but dangerous lie in our culture, well, really ever since the Garden of Eden, is that you are the master of your own destiny and you can make yourself into whatever you want to be. But look at Nicodemus. John wants us to pay particular attention to his religious identity his social status, his academic credentials. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, I mean, the most obvious thing here is Nicodemus is a Jew. And in this day, we have records that make it clear Jews were taught, you are automatically in the kingdom of God. You will enter the kingdom of God by nature of your Jewish blood, your ethnic identity. 
The only way to lose it is if you just do some really, really, really awful sin. But you are a Jew. You are in. Nicodemus was a Jew. Not only that, though, he was, John tells us, a man of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most devout and rigorously religious people in all of Israel. I mean, these were the ones who were after pure worship. The Sadducees were the ones who were compromising with the Greek culture, speaking the Greek language and trying to you know, be relevant to the culture. But the Pharisees were like, we don't want any of that cultural relevance stuff. We want to be strict and clear and pure in all of this. And Nicodemus was one of those. He's not compromising. Not only that, he's a ruler of the Jews. According to John 7, 50, he was probably a member of the, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. There, there were all of these lower courts and all the cities throughout Israel, but in Jerusalem, there was what we would consider the Supreme Court. And there were 71 members of the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, and the highest cases worked their way up to there. And Nicodemus was one of those guys. I mean, maybe the equivalent would be like, this is one of the 50, uh, excuse me, 100 senators in the United States. I mean, this, this guy is a big deal politically in Israel. He's somebody Not only that, Jesus says to him in verse 10, he calls him the teacher of Israel. And one commentator points out, it's significant that he doesn't just say, aren't you one of of many teachers in Israel? He calls him the teacher in Israel. Essentially, he's saying to him, you are the Reverend Dr. Professor Nicodemus. You've got all the letters behind your name. People know about you. Your teachings are famous and you don't get what I'm talking about. So Nicodemus has all of that on his resume. And, I mean, this has got to count for something, right? He's even interested in Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're from God. We saw the signs you're doing. Nobody could do that unless God was with him. And Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you, Nicodemus, for recognizing that. No, he says to him, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. You think you see something, but you don't yet see as you ought to see. The transition into chapter 3, what we call chapter 3, from the end of what we call chapter 2, is not so stark in the Greek. In fact, it's like a continuation that John just told us there are people Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to because he knew what was in them. And the Greek word is more like, and a man named Nicodemus came to him by night. Like, this guy is an example of these people who appear to have some kind of faith, but Jesus doesn't quite trust them because there's something in them. He knows what's in them. He knows what's in Nicodemus. And so he says to him, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you can't make your own soul live. Not with all your religious zeal, not by your social status, not by your political power or your ethnic identity or your academic learning, not even Nicodemus, by your mere interest in Jesus. Now, if this conversation happened between Jesus and a tax collector, or Jesus and a prostitute, or Jesus and a Gentile, that might be easier for us to handle, right? We we get it. Like, that person obviously has problems, and they need such a drastic remedy. But the fact that it's this guy, the guy in all of Israel, D.A. Carson says, if Nicodemus, with his knowledge and gifts and understanding and position and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? 
Even for a Nicodemus, there must be a radical transformation, the generation of new life, comparable with physical birth itself. And I'll admit, there's something distressing, isn't there, about being told you are dead in sin and your best efforts are worthless and you can't make your soul live and you must be born again and this is not something you do for God. I mean, the the very language of birth leaves us with this sense of powerlessness. Did you cause yourself to be born the first time? Did you have any say in when you were born or who you were born to or where you were born? My guess is at some point in your life, you've had that thought like, oh my gosh, why was I born here? Now, this family, I had no control over that. There's a sense of powerlessness in this remedy. You must be born again. But be careful. Powerlessness is easily confused with hopelessness. And it's not hopeless. God's gracious intent in this passage is not to leave you hopeless, but to leave you utterly dependent on him. Don't confuse powerlessness with hopelessness. It's his power, his grace. We sang that that line this morning, strong the hand stretched out to shield us. Perfect the grace that saves us. This is meant to make us dependent because the new birth is a supernatural miracle that God does in you. Verse 8, Jesus likens the work of the Spirit to the wind. In the Greek, the words are actually the same. The word for wind and the word translated spirit is the same Greek word. Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes. You don't control the wind. You don't control the spirit. He blows wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. Jesus says you don't know where the wind comes from and you don't know where it's going. Likewise, there's this sense of We don't comprehend all that the Spirit is doing. We don't comprehend. We don't understand where the wind is going. We don't know. We don't know what the Spirit is up to. But Jesus says, you do hear it sound. It is observable. It is discernible. You can see something of the wind's effect. And likewise, you can see it. When the Spirit of God gives new life to a soul, you can see it. Change happens. Discernible, observable transformation happens in a person when the Spirit of God causes them to be born again. The new birth is not the result of your effort or exertion or decision. The new birth is the result of the Spirit of God creating new life where there was none before. And the Spirit of God doesn't just create new life. The Spirit creates an entirely different kind of life than the kind of life you were born with the first time you were born. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus is drawing a distinction between two kinds of life, flesh life right now, like we all are enjoying, and spirit life, which not everybody yet has. John 6, 63, Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. Worthless, powerless. I mean, the most intelligent minds among us, the most creative minds, can't do anything to cause this kind of life to happen in a person. 
Now, one of our problems is that we, we tend to think of spiritual life, spirit life, as imaginary. I think a lot of people just equate spiritual with imaginary. I just, it just exists in my head. I imagine. I think, it, I think it's there, but there's nothing noticeable about it. The, the flesh, this is palpable and tang, tangible, but the, the spirit is abstract and kind of wispy and not real. Don't think of flesh versus spirit as real versus imaginary. Think of it as perishable versus imperishable. That's the language used in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Just, just pinch your skin for a moment. Just take a breath and listen to the air coming in and out of your body. That life is perishing. That body is decaying. It's perishing. It feels so real and it's going to die. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have a totally different kind of life, eternal life. The Greek phrase translated eternal life literally means the life of the age to come. It goes on and on and on and on. This is not real versus imaginary. This is perishable versus imperishable life. Don't you want that life? Think of it as lowly versus glorious. That's the contrast in Philippians 3, 21. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Not imaginary. He has a body. It's just glorious. And he's going to make you like that. And the first thing he does before he raises your body from the grave is give you a new spirit. So how do you get that? How do you get that glorious, imperishable life? Just like you got your first life, you have to be born with it. And the spirit does that by uniting you to Jesus. The new birth unites you to Jesus. The life you get in the new birth is the very life of Jesus. Jesus is life. John 1, 14, uh, John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 5, 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. John, 1 John 5, 11, same point, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The life that God gives through the new birth is the life of Jesus, and he gives you that life by uniting you to Jesus. The way Jesus makes that life available to you is in this paradoxical way of dying for you. John 3 clearly ties the life of the new birth to the death of Jesus. We can't ever separate the the new birth from the death of Jesus. He tells Nicodemus in verse 14, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referring to that time in Numbers 21. The Israelites are wandering around in the desert. They grumbled and complained against God in unbelief, and so in punishment, God sent serpents, fiery serpents among them, and they started to bite the people, and they started to drop dead And so they cried out in repentance to God for mercy. And God told Moses, make a bronze serpent and hold it up on a pole. And everyone who just looks at that, they're bitten by a snake. If they look up at that serpent, they just set their eyes on it. They'll be saved. And Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. Lifted up on a cross. He gave his life so that those who are perishing from the snake bite of sin might Live and not die. 
by looking at him. The life is in him. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, no one could be born again and enter the kingdom of God. So how do you, from the human side, experience that? We can talk about new birth from two perspectives. Just like we could talk about our first birth from two perspectives. Right? There's, there's the human perspective and the divine perspective. You, you didn't cause yourself to be born, but when you were born, you came out. And then you screamed and you took your first breath and you went on breathing and you're alive and you, you, you are living. Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. Look for these two perspectives, the human side and the divine side. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the human side. Receive him, believe in his name. The new birth unites you to Jesus specifically through faith. And you become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God makes you live. God gives you the new birth. And from your side, you experience it as I receive Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. God begets. God gives life. He gives life in his son. We receive life. There's a very clear emphasis here on God's initiative in our receiving. And receiving means believing in his name. That's the point of John chapter 3. Look at verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Believe in him. Believe in him. Jesus is the source of life, and faith is what unites you to that life. I think in our day, people think that faith is just this nebulous thing that has power in itself. Like if you have enough optimism, that will spur you on to do great things. Faith is powerless in and of itself. Faith is just the the cord that plugs you into the power source. Jesus is the life. Faith is just the cord. There's no power in the cord until it plugs in. Faith is how you come to plug into the life of Jesus So if this thing of God's sovereign initiative and the human response boggles your mind at all, makes you think, so how does that work? Think of it like this. Look at John 3, 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You do come into the light. So come into the light. Believe in Jesus. And when you do, what will be clear is that God did that. God did something in you. Because remember, everyone who's in the darkness loves the darkness and hates the light. How else would you come into the very light that you hate unless God does something in you and changes you so that you come into the light so that it's clear God did that. And every other good thing that comes out of my life, God did that. It's like John chapter 11 when Jesus stands outside of Lazarus' tomb And he gives a command to a dead man. Have you ever thought about that before? He gave a command to a dead person. Why would you do that? He stands and he yells, Lazarus, come out. Talking to dead people, why would you do that? Unless the word caused the life that's needed 
to obey the command. And the word, Lazarus, come out, brings him alive. So did Lazarus raise himself from the dead? No. Did Lazarus walk out of his own desire? Yeah. Because the word made him live. And he obeyed the command and he came out. And that's how the new birth works. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the words I speak are spirit and life. So you hear the word of Jesus. You hear the gospel of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins so that you would not be condemned but live through him. And something happens that you hear that and you could have heard it a hundred times and the light goes on and your eyes are opened and your heart is stirred and you perceive Jesus as glorious and you say, I want him. I've heard that before and I didn't want anything to do with him. And I want him. I believe in him. I receive him. That's how God supernaturally causes dead hearts to come alive. Deaf ears to hear. They were deaf, but now they hear. And it was just the word itself that made them hear. Have you been born again? That's the most pressing question. Did you catch what's at stake here? If you have not been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The only people in the kingdom are people who were born there. Native birth is required. Eternity is at stake. You can grow up in a Christian home and you can attend church and know all of the answers and pray before meals and not watch rated R movies and avoid all of the swear words and have a heart that is dead to God. Beloved, God's gracious aim in this text is not merely to inform you that you must be born again. His purpose is to cause you to be born again. But one of the most incredible things that I saw in the time that I taught at Sioux Falls Christian, which was almost a decade, there was a time between 2010 and 2012 when, um, well, I, I taught here long enough to know it wasn't me. It wasn't what I was doing in my classroom because it didn't happen year after year, semester after semester. All I can attribute it to is the Spirit of God blowing like the wind where and when he wanted. And there, was, there were just... Just student after student after student who came alive and said things like, I've been going to Christian school my whole life. I never got this. I never understood this. I never saw this as beautiful. I thought I had it because I was born in a Christian home. I was baptized as an infant. I grew up in this school, heard the Bible, known the Bible all my life. And now I see, and I've never seen that before. How did I never see that before? And I just marvel. The Spirit of God blows where he wills. Look at Jesus. Receive Jesus. Believe in his name. And if you know people who are dead in their sin, and I'm sure you do, talk about Jesus with them because that's how the Spirit gives new life. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them what Jesus did for them on the cross. Invite them to believe in his name. And may the Spirit of God give the miracle of new birth to hundreds and thousands more in this city who are today living in darkness. Let's pray.